If you haven't met me before, my name is Jack and I lead currently our Explore course here at King's Church. But as Rich said this morning, I'm going to be preaching from uh, John's Gospel, continuing our series Pointing to Jesus. Uh, But before we look at it, we're going to be looking at John chapter 17. Uh, Before we read it together, I'd like you to just imagine something, okay? It's going to be hard work, you've got to really think about this. But imagine you're lying in bed. Don't get carried away. You're lying in bed. Uh, It's mid-morning. It's summer. The sun is streaming through the window. You're warm. You're comfortable. There's nothing on your mind at all to worry you. It's It's a peaceful scene. But just to add to that story, you're 110 years old and you're about to die. I was thinking of starting this morning, imagine you're on your deathbed, but I thought that would be a bit of a downer, a slightly negative start, so I tried to put it in a nicer way, so that's why I put in the, the, the bed image and stuff like that, but basically it's the end for you. I guess that's still kind of ne- negative, isn't it? But um, move, No, it's not negative, it's fine, that's why I put the sun in there, it was going to be quite nice. But the question I've got for you this morning is, what would you pray in that moment? What would you pray if you knew it was the end of your life? Maybe that's not a question for all of you here this morning. Maybe you're not a Christian. You wouldn't say that you're a prayer in that sense. But if you knew it was the end of your life, what would your final thoughts be? Church, if you're a Christian and it's the end of your days, do you know what your final prayer would be for? What it would be? I imagine it would be an important prayer, wouldn't it? I kind of imagine it would be the equivalent of leaving an, an intended legacy behind of what you want to see in the world. Be like you going, God, I'm going to go now. I've run my race. But this is what I want you to continue to do in the world around us. And I hope some of you maybe have got something in mind. I might pray something along these lines. Now, just to be clear... Uh, There isn't a right or wrong answer, well maybe there's a wrong answer, but there there isn't a particular right answer that we're looking for here. So why do I bring this to mind? Well it's because we have an example of this from Jesus in John chapter 17. We could call it his deathbed prayer. Now it's not quite analogous, he's not in bed for a start and and he's going to conquer death afterwards. But it works in a similar sort of way. Here in John chapter Uh, 17, it will be on the screen behind us. It's a fairly long prayer, and we're going to look at some different bits through it. But here we get Jesus. He's just had a meal with all of his disciples, known as the Last Supper. He's washed their feet. Um, He's shared the bread and wine. Judas has now left to go and betray him. That's the end of John 16. And then we get John uh, John 18, where it starts with Judas coming, leading a whole load of soldiers to arrest Jesus, and then is his death shortly afterwards. So this is the place where we see Jesus' prayer. And we're going to see that there's two main things out of this prayer. First is who Jesus is praying for, and then the second thing is what is he praying for. And I think we'll see that the first thing should affect how we pray as Christians, And then the second thing will affect how we live our whole lives. So this passage will affect how we pray, but not just that, but everything about us. So let's read the passage together. We're in John chapter 17, and we're starting in verse 1. After this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. 
that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those that you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have revealed to you those whom you gave to me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have you have is mine and glory has come to me through them i will remain in the world no longer but they are still in the world and i'm coming to you holy father protect them by the power of your name the name that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one while i was with them i protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me none has been lost except for the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled i'm coming to you now But I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth of your word. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, and that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see the glory, the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. It's a long prayer, isn't it? It's a long passage. Uh, And there's a lot in there. And it would be impossible to touch on everything we've got in that passage. But I do think there is a general theme and a gist that we can get out of this prayer. Here we've got Jesus' deathbed prayer. Let's just call it that for the moment. Um, And it's an extended prayer time just before his death. And we're going to look at what does he pray for. But before that, we're going to actually look at who does he pray for. So thinking back to you, it's the end of your life now. Instead of what am I going to pray for, just think, who am I going to pray for? Who would I pray for? Who does Jesus pray for here? 
Well, it's a fairly simple uh, question to answer. If you've got your Bible there in front of you, even the way that the, the editors have sort of divided it out for you might help. It, you see that Jesus prays for, for three things. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays this amazing thing. He prays for us who believe in the message of the disciples, Christians all the way down the ages. So if you're here and you're a Christian this morning, you get specifically prayed for by Jesus Christ here in John chapter 17. And that's amazing. But it isn't just that. Jesus really helpfully, he tells us who he's not praying for as well. I don't know if you caught that, but in verse 9 he says, I am not praying for the world. What does he mean here? I am not praying for the world. Now, it sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? But just to be really clear, Jesus, he's not being anti-ecology here. He's not having a dig at Greta Thunberg or anything like that. He's not talking about the, the body of water and soil and rock that we live on as a planet. But by the world, what Jesus means is he's talking about those people who aren't Christians. Those people who are outside the people of God. That's what Jesus means when he says, I'm not praying for the world. He's distinguishing between his followers, both then at the time, his disciples, and those who would believe in him down the line, and then the world. Just so you know, he's saying, I am not praying for the world. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? I don't often list things I'm not praying for in my prayers. I don't know about you, but maybe you think this is odd. Maybe you're going, yes, Jack, it is odd. And my friend who's not a Christian is here, so maybe we should just skip over this bit. But let's not skip on. Let's, let's, Let's stay here for a moment, because I think there's something incredibly profound about what Jesus is doing here. He's not praying for those outside the Christian community. Now, let me just give you a little discussion point as well. If you're a Christian here and you've been reading your Bible for a while, maybe you can talk about this over lunch or dinner later today. But how many prayers in the Bible are there for the world? People outside the people of God. And by that, I mean prayers for their good. Okay, Don't go to the ones in the Old Testament where it's people going, smite my enemies, take them down. We're not talking about those. I'm talking about how many prayers are for the good of the world around. I could only think of a few specifically where people were praying for the world. But maybe you'll do better than me. But as you look at the Bible, I think it's incredible that most of the prayers, they're not specifically for the world. As we look at the Bible, the prayers that we see are often for other Christians or for other people of the faith. And actually, as you look through the Bible, we're not often encouraged to pray for the world, which can seem really odd, especially if you've come along to a King's Church prayer evening. Um, Because often we do pray for the world. We pray for our friends. We pray for our family. We pray for other people that we know who don't know Jesus. And that's a good thing. I don't want us to stop doing that. It's not a bad thing. I'm not having a knock of praying. Let's all stop praying for other people outside the church. But it is a strange thing. that Many of the prayers in the Bible, they're not for the world. Especially when we consider the central message of the Bible. is that God's so particularly concerned with the world that he decided to do something about it. We know John 3.16, this huge headline verse in John's gospel. For God so loved the... He so loved the world. 
that he sent his one and only son to rescue the world. God doesn't want anyone in the, in the world to perish. He wants all to come to saving faith in Jesus. He's very concerned about the world. So why doesn't Jesus pray for them here? And I think this prayer has, some, has an answer to that. And I think it's an encouraging answer, but it's also an answer that presents us in the church with a huge challenge. I think it's because Jesus knows that it's by those he's praying for, he's going to save the world. He's going to save the world through his followers. Because what's strange about this prayer is that while Jesus very clearly in verse 9, he states, I'm not praying for the world. In a very real sense, the world is still a big main focus of this prayer. From the beginning right the way through to the end. You could describe it as a mission-focused prayer if you wanted to. That Jesus wants to see the lost saved and added to the people of God. So let's look at who Jesus does pray for. I'm going to run through it and I'm going to show you what I mean. Jesus starts by praying first of all for himself. In, in Right at the beginning he says, glorify me Father. Well, he talks actually in the third person and he says, He goes, I want to be glorified in verse 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. What does Jesus mean by glorify me? What's going on? Why does he want to be glorified? What does he mean? Is he asking for a brilliant, comfortable life? Just make me look brilliant. Is that what he's asking? No. No. In verses 2 and 3, his glorification, it involves bringing eternal life to who? The world. Those who he's been given authority over and will believe in his message. Right from the start of this prayer, he says, glorify me. Do something good in me. Why? To make me comfortable? To help me out? No. It's do something good in me, which ultimately is good for the world around It's very similar to the other prayers we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There, Jesus is in this garden of Gethsemane, and we just get one sentence there. But we know that Jesus was there for hours praying, so I think there's some overlap somewhere. And he says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He's saying, I I don't want to experience pain. I don't want to go through the cross and separation from you. But does he stop there? No. He goes on, and what does he say? He says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, God. And this prayer here, it's a Gethsemane-like prayer. It's not my will, God. It isn't make me comfortable. It isn't make me great in that sense. I don't want to get off lightly. No, he's saying, glorify me for the people of the world that they might have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, God, and the one who you sent. It's not my will. Send me to the cross for the good of the world. That's how Jesus prays for himself. And then he goes on and he prays for the disciples. Verses 6 to 19. As we jump down to verse 11, Jesus realizes that he's leaving the world. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. His prayer is for the disciples who he's leaving behind. Soon he's going to go to the Father in heaven and he's going to leave these guys behind. But he wants them to continue his mission in the world. In verse 15, 
He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Well, why would he want to take them out of the world? That's where Jesus has been working. That's where Jesus has been trying to, 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 to encourage people to follow him. Jesus is going to the cross to die for the world. For God so loved the world. Why would he take them out from there? He wants his disciples to be where Jesus has been at work. Now, if this is all getting a little bit confusing and you're getting a little bit lost, I think verse 18 is really key. Verse 18, he says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. One of the the commentaries that I read on this described this prayer as like a prayer of consecration. And, And by that, what he means is if you were consecrated, then you were set apart to, to, ooh, you were, sounds a bit space age, doesn't it? Consecration. Anyway, but you were set apart normally for a really important job. So the priests in the Old Testament, they're described as being consecrated so that they could then serve in the temple. So so what they would do is they'd be set apart and and they would maybe have ritual washings, that they would have special clothes, that they'd have to make sacrifices so that they could then be different from the rest of the world so that they could do this important task. And what Jesus is praying here is he's saying, consecrate my people, set them apart, make them ready for an important task that I have for them. I want them to be ready for the mission. God, I want them to be in the world, to do good to the world. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them. And then Jesus prays for Christians down the ages. You and me today, if you follow Jesus. And in specific what he prays, he prays for the disciples and them that we would be one. In verses 21 and 22, he wants complete unity. How does that work? Well, we'll see that in a moment. But I want us to notice the reason he wants complete unity among those who believe in him. Verse 21, why should we be one together? So that the world may believe that you've sent me. Why should we be brought to complete unity? Verse 23, he says, then the world will know that you've sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Do you see, although Jesus isn't explicitly praying for the world here, they're still the focus of his prayer. They're real center and forefront. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you'd say you don't follow Jesus, I want you to know you are really welcome here. We love having you here. And maybe this morning you found some bits of it uh, a bit alienating. Maybe you thought, Some of those songs, I don't know if I can really sing them with any conviction because I don't know if I believe that. But we love that you can be here, that you can join in as much or as little as you feel comfortable with. We we want you to be able to ask us questions and 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 see what we're about as a church. Because in a in an important way, part of why we exist as a church is for you. You're not an inconvenience to us. We love you being here. And when I say that, all I mean is that we're emulating our hero, Jesus Christ. That because he came to serve the world, he came to love the world and save the world, that even on his deathbed prayer, you are on his mind. You might see in this passage that there is a sense in which he is definitely just praying for Christians, for those who believe in the message of the disciples, 
That's us who are part of the church. But if you're, not here, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can't not be here. Well, that's, that would be weird. Unless you're on the download. Yeah. Download. If you're not here and you're here to sing on... Anyway, moving on. But you, he's praying for you as well. Maybe you're thinking, well, if he's praying for me, why doesn't he pray for me directly? And I think that is an important question. It's a fair question that we have to look at. And it's as I said earlier, I think Jesus understood very clearly that the, the way in which God works in the world. God very rarely works directly in the world, immediately, you, 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 working with you. But he works through people, through an intermediary, through his church, his followers, his disciples. And that's why I think Jesus has decided to pray for them. And that understanding is reflected in how Jesus prays and how most of the people pray throughout the whole of the Bible. That's why Jesus prays. Um, and that's why if you're a Christian here and you're part of King's Church Lewis, why we should pray for one another as well and why we should pray for ourselves. Because sometimes we might pray, God, save my friend. And in one sense, that is completely fine. And that is a good prayer. But it can sometimes show a bit of a misunderstanding on how you think God works in the world. Sometimes we pray, God, convict my friend of his sins. I know I've prayed like this, and I think, do you know what? That's a, that's a really good prayer. It's a biblical prayer, you know, especially as we see in John 15 that the, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sins, righteousness, and judgment. It's a good prayer, isn't it? Well, yes, you can pray that right. But how, do we, how are we imagining that looks like when we pray that prayer? I know that I've prayed it very much imagining that my friend is walking down the street and then suddenly goes, Oh no, I was just thinking about what I was going to have for lunch, but now my sins are laid bare before me and I must go to church. Now, does that often happen? It ha- I'm sure it has happened. And I'm sure it will happen again in the future. And God can do it that way. But that's not normally how he works. God likes to work through his people, the church. I know I've definitely prayed prayers like that. But it can show a misunderstanding. If you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus prays for you because he wants to use you. And I think as, as Christians, we should be encouraged to pray as Jesus does. That when we pray, we enlist the power of the Holy Spirit. Who, uh, As we do that, we end up putting ourselves forward in those prayers. Because if we pray like Jesus did, we pray for ourselves, we pray for others to be re- made ready for the mission, to lead people into glorifying God. Because when you start praying that, it's inevitable you're going to start acting and working as Jesus did in the world. As you pray, you enlist God's help. And you say, you know what, Father? Use me. Send me out into the world to share your love. So this prayer teaches us how to pray. As ones who recognize that we're followers of Jesus and we are agents in the world to share his love. So that's the first bit. That's who Jesus prays for. But also, what does Jesus pray? What does he pray for us who are part of the church? He prays for unity, that we live united, together. That's what we do. But what does Jesus mean by being in unity, being one? Well, verses 20 to 23, I think, are pretty key here. And we see that Jesus has unity on his heart for all those who follow him and his disciples. Um, And he has that in two ways. And the first way is a horizontal unity. 
Verse 23, he says that we might be brought to complete unity. And by that he means with one another. This is a unity with other Christians. Again, let's think back right to the beginning. It's the end of your life and you were praying for the most important thing that you would leave as a legacy. Did you pray for Christian unity? Was that what was on your mind? I think even if we did pray for for God's people, we probably would have prayed prayers like, God, can we see more miracles in the church? Can we we have a bolder witness in the church? Can we be more righteous and sinless? And that's all brilliant prayers. That's great, necessary prayers that we need. But the funny thing is, that's not what Jesus prays here. That's the most important thing on his mind. He wants us to be brought together into a state of complete unity with one another horizontal across the church and I think we understand that as Christians if we're more together if we're more united that's a great witness to the world around us isn't it and unfortunately I think the reason we might recognize that is because we know the opposite is true that if we argue if we divide if we split up, then it's natural for people to look around and think, surely there's nothing special here. Even his people can't get along with one another. And so, sadly, that's what some people's experience of church is. Christian unity is a powerful witness to the world around us. And Christian disunity can lead to almost making Jesus look like a bit of a fraud to the world. That's why Jesus makes a big deal of it in his prayer. He wants us to be together and on the same page. Now, I want to point out a few quick things about this horizontal unity with one another before we go on, uh, because often we can get the wrong idea about it, what it might look like. The first thing I want to say in this passage and the New Testament as a whole is that unity is normally within a local church. It's within the local church. This is the hub for unity and being together. Um, A lot of what we see mentioned uh, in the New Testament when it comes to unity is specific to local churches because they have specific problems. One of the many problems that we see is like you see it in the church of Galatia is that there are these like Jews and Gentiles, so Jewish people and non-Jewish people uh, who have decided to... um, follow Jesus and they're coming together sort of for the first time because when Jesus was born even a Jew and a Gentile they wouldn't even eat together they weren't supposed to do it because um, and yet when you get to the New Testament there are these whole churches built around these two people coming together being united and that's why Paul says to the church in Galatia in Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 he says so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God uh, through faith There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's the teaching of the New Testament as a whole. It's vitally important in the local church that we are together, that different fractions and uh, disunity is dealt with, and we remember that we are one in Christ Jesus. We At King's Church Lewis, we might not have the same issue of Jews and Gentiles coming together for the first time. But we need to remember that whatever our background, whatever our situation or anything else, we are in Christ first and foremost. And that should be what makes us united together. It's important. Jesus takes it seriously. So as a church, we should take unity together seriously. 
But horizontal unity is also between all Christians. And I think that's probably what Jesus mainly has on his mind here in John 17. But unfortunately, we could often see public disunity and fractions between churches. Jesus prays for unity among all the believers, that they would become one as he and the Father is one. That we should stand united, not just as King's Church Lewis, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches in Lewis, in the UK and across the globe. However, the third thing I want to say is that unity isn't easy. Horizontal unity with one another, it's not just let's snap our fingers and we all get along. Every Christian grabs hands and we all start swaying and it's all fantastic. It doesn't work like that, does it? It's hard. It's harder than we even think it can possibly be. We often fall out with people. We even, even those who's, who love and follow Jesus, we, we, we rub each other up the wrong way. We disagree. We don't get along all the time. It's hard. So how are we supposed to get this horizontal unity? How are we meant to get along with one another in the way that Jesus is talking about here? It's by getting first a different kind of unity. It's the second and more important unity that Jesus mentions. It's a vertical unity. Because there are these other bits in that passage that uh, when he starts talking about unity, it all gets a little bit confusing. And you're like, it doesn't quite fit with what I'm thinking here. Verse 21, he says, may they also be in us. Verse 23, I in them and you in me. And when I read that, I start going, who's in who and what's going on here? He's talking about a vertical unity first with God through the Holy Spirit. That somehow when you trust and believe in Jesus Christ... You, you come into the relationship between the Father and the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying is if you want to achieve unity with one another, then first you have to get a vertical unity with the Father through me. He's pointing forward to what he will achieve once and for all on the cross. There's a sense he's pointing forward to what he's going to do when... Uh, on the cross where we were outside we were excluded we were broken from God our sin acted as a barrier but now as Christians through trusting in Jesus Christ we can be brought into God's family that the very relationship between the father and the son is now ours if we trust in Jesus because as you trust in him you become children of God that we're cleansed from our sin free forgiven made ready so that we now have God dwell in us by his Holy Spirit God the Father answered this very prayer of Jesus when he sent him to the cross to make a way for us to be connected to him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that is available for you too. That you can have that vertical union with God. You can come to know Jesus through what he has achieved for you on the cross. And as you do that, God then begins to work with you horizontally by knitting you into the local church and making that the central focus of your life. If you're a Christian, then we need to remember this union with God. Remember that we are connected through Jesus and what he's done, that we can now walk in step with the Spirit. We can draw near to God as he draws near to us, that we can push in and say, I want to be more like Jesus and less like the world around me, that I want to get along with my brothers and sisters in Christ because they have the same main focus that I do as God at the center of my life. And as we unite vertically with God, 
we become more and more like Jesus. We become more and more like him. We begin to pray for one another around us. And we become more united horizontally. And with one another in the church. And as we do this, the world looks on and sees that our love for one another reflects the love that we have for God. And they see that Jesus Christ has been sent. And I think there's a weight to this that we need to respond to as a church. I think we need to respond to this. And we're going to do that in just a moment. We're going we're gonna to pray for each other. It might be a bit uncomfortable at first. I, wanna, I want us to get into groups of threes or fours, just where you're sitting. Feel free to move the chairs around, etc. But we're going to respond to this because I think there are three ways that we can pray for one another now. First is if you're here and you're not a Christian, but you want something of that vertical relationship with God, that you want your sins forgiven and to be connected with God at the center of your life, then it's available for you. And we will be more than happy to pray for you um, to receive that. Secondly, if you're here and you're a Christian this morning and you're feeling like you're not knit into the local church, that you're feeling a bit distant and maybe not quite as united as you think. Well, first of all, I want to, let's pray for your vertical union with God, that your relationship with him at the center, to put it in the right place so that then from there you can move out horizontally and join with the church together. And then lastly, you're here a Christian, you don't fit into either of those two categories. Then we pray for one another that we would glorify God with our lives so that we would be a witness to the world around us for the love of God. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's get into groups of threes and fours and just pray for one another um, that we would glorify God.